invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to continue our sermon series in Exodus this morning, looking at verses 22 through 27. We saw grumbling in the passage that Pastor Dean read from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see a kind of grumbling in Pastor Ben's passage tonight in Romans. We're seeing uh, grumbling here in Exodus uh, chapter 15. This day is uh, a day of grumbling, I guess. I think God had planned this day for me or perhaps others who struggle with grumbling from time to time in their lives. We have seen uh, the deliverance of God's people. We have seen the wonderful song of celebration at the beginning of Exodus chapter 15, and now, immediately after that, the Israelites face trouble. There is no water to drink, and so the Israelites uh, grumble against God. If you haven't brought a Bible with you this morning, our passage is found on page 57 in the Pew Bibles, in the Pew Racks in front of you. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea until they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, And do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water." And thus far, God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, we pray that you would teach us from your word today. That you would admonish us, O God, to rest in you, to trust in you, to rejoice in you always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you respond to trials, to difficulties, to setbacks, to hard times in your life? Do you turn inward? Do you turn to the Lord? Do you feel sorry for yourself? Or do you accept these hard times as from the hand of the Lord? Do you give thanks in all circumstances as Scripture commands us? 
Or do you grumble and complain, as many Christians often do, as the Israelites do here? Once came across the story of a man called Brother John. And Brother John entered a monastery, and when he entered the monastery, the abbot said to him, Brother John, this is a silent monastery. You are welcome here as long as you like, but you may not speak until I direct you to do so. Brother John lived in the monastery for five years before the abbot said to him, Brother John, you have been here five years now. You may speak two words. Brother John said, hard bed. I'm sorry to hear that, the abbot said. We will get you a better bed. Another five years, Brother John was called by the abbot. You may say another two words, Brother John. Cold food, said Brother John, and the abbot assured him that the food would be better in the future. On his 15th anniversary at the monastery, the abbot again called Brother John into his office. Two words you may say today, I quit said Brother John. It is probably best, said the abbot, you've done nothing but complain since you got here. (laughs) Joking aside, grumbling in the Bible is a serious matter. In fact, it is seen as rebellion against God. It's often associated with apostasy in Scripture. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 is speaking about Israel in the wilderness, and he says this, we must not put God to the test, as some of them did, the Israelites did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example written down for our instruction. In the book of Jude, Jude writes about the ungodly, those on whom judgment will come as, quote, grumblers, malcontents. And the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing, or what could be translated, complaining all things without grumbling or complaining. Grumbling affects our holiness. Grumbling affects our witness. Grumbling is contrary to the will of God, and it possibly even indicates a deeper salvation issue. In our lives. And we pick up here in Exodus chapter 15 with Israel after God has destroyed the Egyptian army. There was a wonderful victory, a wonderful celebration afterwards, and now it is time to move on. And first of all, we see here in our passage that God leads Israel to a place of testing. God is still leading his people. Uh, by a, a, a cloud uh, and by a pillar of fire, even though it's not explicitly mentioned in our text here. He leads them to a place of 
texting, uh, testing, sorry, texting. They, they did not have that back then, sorry. <laughs> Got to get modern world out of my mind. Testing. Look at verse 20, 22. Then <clears throat> Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, notice here the language in the ESV, Moses made Israel set out. Now, you may have a translation that reads something like this, Moses led Israel out, although I think the ESV is uh, is correct here. He made them set out. In other words, they, they, he had to prod them to get them moving. They were having this big old celebration, this big old party, and they probably were slow here in getting going. But it was time to go. And they went, as the text said here, into the wilderness, where generally in that wilderness, uh, in that particular uh, land, water was available, but not always readily available. And they went three days, and there was no water. Now, generally, you would be able to find water every day or so, but here they go three days. God led them three days where there was no water. The water that they had at the end of three days through desert land, the wilderness, would have been depleted. Israel was probably at this point near panic, in fact. The testing had begun. There are probably rumblings going on with these Israelites, but it's time to move on. Verse 23, they come to Marah. They find water, but it is bitter. In other words, it is undrinkable. It's hard to know exactly what bitter means here. Mara, by the way, means bitter. It's the meaning of the, the word Mara. It's unclear. Is it poisonous? Is it undrinkable, as one scholar puts it, because of large percentages of dissolved mineral salts or some other reason? But the fact that it's bitter, it's undrinkable, is, is emphasized here. It's, we see four times in verse uh, 23 uh, that it is, it is undrinkable. Mara, Mara, bitter, Mara. Bitter, 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 bitter. Four times we read that it is bitter and it is undrinkable. Also harkens back, by the way, to chapter 1, verse 14. The same word is used there. Their, their life was bitter. Israelites' life was bitter under slavery. And by the way... The Israelites eat what at their Passover meal? Bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter bitterness of, of slavery. And so what do they do? They grumble in verse 24 against Moses. And Moses, in turn, verse 25, as he has grown strong in faith, cries out to God, God points him to a log, he throws it into the water, and the water becomes sweet or it becomes drinkable.
I want you to see again about this passage is that God has led them to this place of testing. That has led them here to this place of testing. The Apostle James writes in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Instead of grumbling, complaining in times of hardship, in times of of trial, God calls us to face our trials with joy. Why? Because scripture says God is working in them. God has led us to them, or God has brought them to us in our lives. Why? To to strengthen our faith, that we might be faithful to the very end. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his morning and evening devotionals, writes this, Our Heavenly Father sends us frequent troubles to test our faith. If our faith is worth worth anything, it will stand the test. Guilt, that's G-I-L-T, not G-U-I-L-T, guilt is afraid of fire, but gold is not. The imitation gem dreads being touched by the diamond, but the true jewel fears no test. It is a poor faith that can only trust God when friends are true, the body is healthy, and the business profitable. But it is true faith that rests in the Lord's faithfulness when friends are gone, the body is ailing, the spirits are depressed, And the light of the Father's face is hidden. A faith that can say in the deepest trouble, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, is a heaven-born faith. Secondly, we see in our passage this morning that God sanctifies his people through their trials. He sanctifies his people through their trials. In addition to testing them, he is seeking their holiness. Look at the second half of verse 25 and into verse 26, through verse 26. We see this. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I will put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. 
In addition to testing, God seeks their holiness. God has delivered. He has provided. And now he wants his people to obey him. He calls them to obey. As Phil Riken puts it, in kind of our theological terms, they believed. They are, in one sense, perhaps we could put this in, as Riken says, they've, they've been justified. They're right with God. They've believed. They've worshipped. What's next? Sanctification. The process of holiness now starts in the wilderness. And, of course, these Israelites have a long, long way to go, as we all did at the beginning and still do. What does it require? First of all, it requires that we, we diligently listen to the voice of the Lord our God, as verse 26 says. Diligently listen. This is actually really diligently listen. It's really just two, in the Hebrew, two forms of the, of the verb uh, to hear. If hearing you will hear. If you hear, hear, hear. Hear. Hear the voice of the Lord your God, is what it says. Really hear the Lord. Listen to the Lord. Take seriously God's word for you. In your daily Bible reading, just skim over the passage you're reading. Sit and meditate on the word of God. Keep a journal as you read. God's word, reflecting on the word of God. Hear it, reflect on it, take seriously God's word to you. And do what is right, it says. Do that which is right in his eyes. What God has told you to do, do it. Be not hearers of the word, but doers also. The final two clauses here in verse 26 basically emphasize the first two. Give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes. Listen closely and keep all his statutes. We can't just pick and choose. Well, I don't want to steal, but adultery is not so bad. Or maybe I won't commit adultery, but stealing is not so bad. Whatever it might be. Keep all his statutes. This is sanctification. This is holiness. Living in obedience to God. Living according to the commands of God. But of course, while God is working in us by his grace and by his spirit. And here God has shown Israel that they can trust him. They can trust him. They can rest in him. He is mighty. He is powerful to to provide for their needs. And he is mighty and powerful to help us in our walk with him. We must rely on the power of God because we can't do this sanctification stuff on our own. We need the help and the power of God. The Israelites will be slow to learn 
At times, God will employ what we might call severe mercies. Severe mercies. Yet God, God's perfect purposes for his people, his true people, will prevail. Back in October of 1987, an 18-month-old girl by the name of Jessica McClure fell into a well in her backyard. She actually survived the fall but was wedged into an 8-inch hole. It took rescue workers 58 hours to free her. What they had to end up doing is to dig a parallel well and then dig across into the one that Jessica was stuck in. And near the end of this ordeal, one of the rescue workers was heard on a a radio saying, we may have to break her to save her. And sometimes that's what God has to do to us. He may have to break us to save us. But God will continue his work. Sometimes God uses trials, hardships, breaks us in order to save us. Our sufferings are for our good to make us what God desires us to be. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Third and finally, God provides for his people through his grace and mercies. He provides for his people through his grace and mercy. God's intention from the beginning was to provide for his people. That was his intention from the the very beginning. He does so through the, the mediation of Moses despite the unbelief of Israel. He makes the bitter water sweet. And in the end, this episode ends in verse 27 with abundant water and welcome shade in the desert, verse 27 tells us. God, in fact, we see over and over again in Scripture, and many of us uh, experience this in our lives, that God provides for our needs, but more often God provides an abundance, more than we need. And that's what we see here. Verse 27, they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The numbers 12 and 70 are significant in Scripture. On the one hand, 12 is the the 12 tribes coincides with the 12 tribes of Israel. Perhaps we've got here 12 springs. We've got a, a spring for each tribe going on here. But also, as Phil Riken points out, the numbers 12 and 70 in the Bible are symbolic for fullness, 
and blessing. God is providing, but he is also blessing with abundant provision in this harsh desert. Matthew Henry writes this, God can find places of refreshment for his people even in the wilderness of this world. It's common to hear people refer to God as Jehovah Jireh, which literally means God, the Lord will provide. The first time that expression, the Hebrew expression, is used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, uh, the story of Abraham and, and Isaac, where God tells Abraham to to take Isaac and to go and sacrifice him and, of course, stops him at the very end and then provides a a substitute. And Abraham names the place the Lord will provide, literally Yahweh Jireh, or though, although Yahweh, we could put Jehovah Jireh in place of Yahweh, literally Hebrew, uh, Yahweh. But God is the provider for his people. As we saw there, as we see here, In Exodus chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We can give thanks, as Paul puts it, that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We can rest in God to be our provider for what we need. The reason we can rest in God to provide for what we need is that he has already provided for our greatest need. I want to transition now to prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning. Our greatest need, brothers and sisters, I think we all know, is our spiritual need. And God has provided for that in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think outside of Christ, we would be greater grumblers and malcontents. Christ has provided for us what we need in Christ. We would be rebels against God. We would be rebels against his servants. But Christ came as a servant. Christ himself humbled himself and went to the cross and died for sinners, dying the death that we deserved. Through his grace and through his mercy, he provided salvation that we could not gain for ourselves. And through that same grace and mercy, God provides a supper that we're about to partake of to remind us, to strengthen us. Indeed, God provides this means of grace to to strengthen us in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we not only remember his death, but, but touch and, and taste uh, and see that the Lord is good. As we come and eat 
together this morning, we need to remember that, that Christ is present with us. He is spiritually present, as he promises to be when we come to, to partake of the Lord's Supper. This Supper is for believers, and believers only, only for those who are trusting in Christ, who are members of his church. If you are here this morning and you are not a a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are so delighted that you are here this morning, but this is a part of our service that we would ask you not to partake in. Uh, Scripture at one point says that that those who partake in an unworthy manner, that is, without uh, believing, trusting in Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so we are, we are pleading with you not to take uh, this morning for that very reason, because of uh, our, our confidence in the Bible itself. Uh, parents for, who have children who have not yet um, made a public profession of faith, uh, please keep your children from partaking as well, uh, but use this time to teach them about the love and the grace and the mercies of God. But for all who have trusted in Christ, who are members of his church, this table is for you. Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, how we thank you for your work of salvation and deliverance. How we thank you for your sanctifying work. How we thank you for the way that you provide for us, even, O God, providing spiritual food for us. And so we pray that you would prepare our hearts now as we come to this table this morning. We give you all thanks, O God, to you and to you alone be glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.